Well, we're continuing on this morning in our study of the book of Romans. And over the last few weeks, we've been considering the introduction to this letter. And um, it's a long letter. I I don't know the last time you got a letter that was 7,000 words long. Hopefully you don't get too many emails that are that long. Um, But the book of Romans is extensive. And it makes sense then that the introduction to it is extensive. Paul's laying out a lot of things that he's going to further unpack in the book. And one of the things that we've noticed in the last few weeks is that he jumps right into the gospel. As soon as Paul starts the book, he's talking about the gospel, God's good news of what he has done through Jesus Christ. And what we saw a few weeks ago when Ryan was um, preaching through this is that Paul is eager to come to Rome to visit these Christians who are there in the capital city of the empire. And Paul hasn't been to this city before. He didn't plant these churches. But he longs to come and see them, and he longs to come and see them so they can be mutually encouraged in that face-to-face interaction. One of the things that can be most surprising, I think, for us as we consider the initial verses is that Paul's eager to proclaim the gospel to them. He wants to come to this church and he wants to proclaim the gospel to them. And Ryan brought out for us how fascinating this really is, that Paul isn't speaking in particular of proclaiming the gospel to unbelievers, but he's talking about coming to these believers and preaching the gospel to them. And today he goes on to tell us why that is. And in the verses that we're going to look at, just verses 16 and 17, part of what he's getting at here is that he's not ashamed of this gospel. He's not ashamed of it. He's proud of the gospel. That's why he wants to talk about it with them. And these verses, verses 16 and 17 that we'll look at today, they're really a summary of so much of the letter. They are just packed full of meaning. And what we'll see as we look at them is why Paul isn't ashamed of the gospel, why he's excited to talk about it, why he has oriented his entire life around this message. And I think as we look at it, it will help us consider our own potential shame when we think about the gospel, and it will help us to, along with Paul, be less ashamed of the gospel and actually proud of what we see there in the text. So let me read for us our passage this morning. It's Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. If you're um, following along in a pew Bible, you can find this text on page 939, if you'd like to look at it there. It's also printed in your bulletin on page 8. It's these few short verses, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is God's word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his help as we consider it this morning. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us as we consider the weighty wonder of your word. We pray that your spirit would work in our hearts to help us hear and believe 
the truth that's contained and the power that's there to change us, to bring us from darkness into light and to make us more and more like the Lord Jesus. We ask your help this morning as we all come with various things on our hearts and our minds. We may have distractions and cares. We may have deep longings and concerns. We may have doubts and questions. We may be here against our choice and against our will just trying to get through it. We pray that you would meet us today and that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty of your good news of gospel grace. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll look at uh, these verses in uh, three points. The first is the temptation of gospel shame. We'll talk about the temptation of gospel shame. And then secondly, what the gospel is for. And then third, how the gospel works. So the temptation of gospel shame, what the gospel is for, and how the gospel works. But first of all, let's consider the temptation of gospel shame. Isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul, (laughs) um, who many of us probably think is a spiritual giant in the faith, and for good reason, uh, we look to his example in so many ways as he follows the example of Christ. But right at the beginning of his letter, he brings up this topic of shame. And he says that he's not ashamed of the gospel. Now, shame is a weighty word, and it can be used in a lot of ways And so I want to just clarify um, how it's being used so we can understand it as as we think about it in our own lives and with what Paul is saying. In our day, we most often use shame to speak of negative feelings that we would have about ourselves. Negative feelings we might have, um, feeling less than, feeling like an outsider, feeling dirty for something about us, something about our story. Maybe something that we have done or something that has been done to us. And so it's these negative feelings we have about ourselves. And the gospel addresses shame. Uh, It definitely does. But when we hear Paul say that he's not ashamed of the gospel, it's not that aspect of shame that he's talking about most particularly. There's overlap, there's, there's application, but the shame that he's speaking of is more the shame of the ridicule that you'll receive for believing something that's not popular. Ridicule that you'll receive for believing something uh, that people think is silly. Uh, the shame that he speaks of is the embarrassment that you experience when you go all in on something, Right? Uh, You fully commit to it, and then it turns out to not be as good as you thought it would be, or it doesn't deliver what it promises. When I think about this, the example that comes to my mind is is the start of a, a dating relationship, where often the people involved, they go all in, right? Everything in their lives tends to change. Priorities all of a sudden shift. Going to class, uh, not a big deal. Um, getting sleep, no way. I've got someone to talk to. Uh, how they spend their money and their time. And a lot of times friends are watching, right? And friends often in the process get sidelined because of the zeal of the relationship. Um, but for the parties involved, it's all worth it if it works out, right? There's no shame in going all in for the potential relationship that may result. But if that doesn't work out, and then you go back to your friends, that feeling of embarrassment, that's the shame that Paul's talking about here. I went all in, 
and I turned out to be embarrassed by the result. You know, this could happen when we make a lifestyle choice, we, uh, a type of eating or exercise or a business venture, and, and we think, I'm sure that this investment of time and money and energy will pay off. It's going to get me where I need to be. But if those things don't pan out, then you feel the shame or the embarrassment of your commitment to those things. Well, Paul is saying here that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Paul has gone all in on his commitment to the gospel message. He's unashamedly orienting his entire life around it. It's what he thinks about. It's what he talks about. It shapes his life. It shapes his travel plans. He's being beaten and persecuted for it. When he comes to them, he says, I want to talk to you about the gospel. And this commitment to the gospel has opened Paul up to ridicule and to persecution from all types of people. We heard in our scripture reading in 1 Corinthians 1 that um, the Jewish people wanted signs and they found a crucified Messiah to be a stumbling block to them. And then on the flip side, the Greeks wanted wisdom and they found the message of Christ and him crucified to be foolishness. And so Paul's getting it from both sides and even believers, professing believers, are wrestling with Paul's gospel. Jewish Christians thought that he was too easy on the Gentiles and he's downplaying keeping Torah and he's sidelighting these things that were so important to them in their Jewishness. And other Christians were thinking that the way of the cross was too weak in this world. And Paul's gospel must be somehow flawed because look how much he's suffering. You see, Paul's getting it from all sides. He has many reasons to be tempted to be ashamed or embarrassed of this gospel. But when Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel, it reminds us of the fact that God's people have always been tempted to be ashamed of the message of the cross. Have you ever found yourself tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? Um, Throughout history and, and what we see addressed even in the scriptures, when it speaks of shame that we could have around the gospel message, it could be this message of Christ and him crucified. It's so, it's so strange and it's so offensive that we may be tempted to downplay it in our lives. Or sometimes the, the weakness that Christians have or the suffering that they endure as they follow Christ can tempt us to be ashamed of the gospel that we believe in and that we're orienting our lives around. And while this is nothing new, it has happened all throughout believers' lives, I think many of us are finding that the gospel is increasingly putting us at odds with others, isn't it, in our day and age? It's making us the objects of ridicule. You know, you think just back in in our country's history, and you think back in the 1960s and 50s, church attendance was far higher than than it is right now, right? And many of you are sitting here, and you have seen that change over these decades of how being a Christian was once a very accepted thing, and there were benefits to that, to now it being a thing that is very often looked down upon and ridiculed. And we feel it in the workplace. We feel it in our families. We feel it in school. 
We feel it in the public square as we talk about our ideas and convictions and values. You know, shame is an interesting thing because people respond to it in different ways. I think for many of us, when we think of being ashamed of something, we think of going quiet about it, right? We're ashamed of the gospel and therefore we don't say anything about it. Shame resulting in timidity or silence. And that's one of the things that the embarrassment of the gospel can tempt us to do, to talk about it less and less. But shame doesn't always result in timidity or silence. Sometimes when we're ashamed and embarrassed, we get angry. (laughs) Sometimes when we're ashamed and embarrassed, we get loud. And we try and cover that embarrassment, we try and cover that shame by speaking loudly and forcefully about our values, trying to somehow quell this underlying fear that what we could be believing in might not actually be living up to all that it promises. And you know, so sometimes when we think of being ashamed of the gospel, we think, I need to make sure I don't go silent. And we might look at those who are very loud about the gospel, and we may think they're not ashamed when actually the tone of what they're saying and the things that they're focusing on that aren't directly tied to the gospel may reveal a shame of the gospel message itself as well. And so it's a tricky thing that we need to tease out in our hearts. But Paul's point is this, that even though the gospel leads to ridicule, persecution, and suffering, it is worth it. It is worth it because ultimately the gospel will not lead to shame. It will deliver all that it promises. And therefore we don't need to be embarrassed or ashamed of it. Instead we can be proud of it in the best way. And so the way he's going to show us that and show us how not to be ashamed of the gospel is by explaining why this is. And so let's look at it. We've seen the temptation of gospel shame, but now our second point, he's not ashamed because he knows what the gospel is for. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because he knows exactly what it's promising, exactly what its purpose is, exactly what it is setting out to accomplish. You know, if we're looking to the gospel for the wrong things, then it's going to lead to shame and embarrassment when it doesn't result in those things, isn't it? And this is a subtle temptation that happens for us as Christians. If we think that the purpose of the gospel is to make our lives easier now, or the purpose of the gospel is to take away our sicknesses and to make our struggles go away, if we think the gospel is somehow about giving us wealth or status, or power, then we're going to be sorely disappointed by what it actually does. And the amazing thing is, as as Paul reorients us to the purpose of the gospel, we see that it's actually so much bigger than all of those other things. Paul calls us to see what the gospel is for. And ultimately, the gospel is God's saving action to make all things right. The gospel is God's saving action to make all things right. And I want you to see that from the text. He says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. 
There's the purpose. There's what it is aiming at, is this word salvation. Now, salvation is a word that most simply just means deliverance, or it means rescue. And that's the storyline of Scripture, the storyline of the Bible that Paul is going to make very clear. And here's kind of his thesis of all that he's going to unpack. So he's saying it in such terse words, but he's going to spend chapters unpacking these things. And and I'm excited because we get to walk through this together. But what he's going to make clear is that every person on the planet needs deliverance and needs rescue. And we need rescue from God's wrath because we have gone desperately wrong in sin. We have rebelled against the Creator, he's going to say, and we'll look at it next week. We've chosen to live life our way instead of his way. And the beauty of the word salvation is it says that that is not the end of the story. That God hasn't left us there in need of rescue, but he has entered in to rescue us. And in Christ, he brings salvation, rescue, deliverance from our sin that got us into this situation in the first place. So the the purpose of the gospel is bringing salvation. But salvation is about more than just forgiving our sin. And I think that's one of the things that we can fall into. When we hear that word, we just think having our sins forgiven. But part of what Paul is going to unpack in the book of Romans is that salvation, whilst dealing with forgiveness of sins, is also restoring us as image bearers of God to the glory of God that we were created to be in and reflect in our existence. It's about more than just forgiving our our sins. It's restoring us to who we were made to be. And it goes even beyond that, because as we come to Romans 8, he's going to say that God's saving work is actually about liberating the whole creation from all of the evil and destruction and decay that has resulted from sin's entrance into the world. And so if we want to think of how big and how grand salvation really is, we could really boil it down to this phrase, It's God making all things right, both us and all of creation. And that's where Paul's language of the righteousness of God is also a really helpful phrase. He says there in verse 17 that in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, the righteousness of God is a very important term in Romans. Paul's going to mention it seven times in this book, and he doesn't mention it a whole lot elsewhere. And it can refer to several things. Books have been written about the phrase, the righteousness of God. Uh, And I'm not going to spend a book-length time talking about it. But I think what Paul is doing here in this introduction is he is using this phrase, he's using it, in a thick way, meaning this. I think he's using it in a way that's pulling together threads that we see throughout Scripture of how big this phrase really is. And so one of the things that it means is God himself is righteous, isn't he? We're going to see this in Romans chapter 3, that God always does what is right. 
And the righteousness of God also means that God not only is righteous, but he acts righteously. Out of his righteousness and doing what is right, he also acts to make things right. And the Old Testament consistently speaks of God's righteousness in this active way. It speaks of the righteousness of God, and it will parallel it with that phrase that we just talked about, his salvation. Isaiah repeatedly foretells that the righteousness of God is going to come. And what he means by that is God is going to show up in history, and God is going to deal with and judge everything that's wrong, and he's going to save his people from all their enemies. And Paul is using that phrase, the righteousness of God, that way here. In the gospel, God's saving action to make all things right, it has now appeared. It's here. It's arrived. It is being unleashed upon the world everywhere the gospel is heard and believed. And so what is the gospel for? It's God's power for salvation. It's God's righteous action of saving us from our sin, but also of dealing with all that sin has done to us and to this world. That's pretty amazing news, isn't it? Part of of why we're not ashamed of the gospel is because of how amazing what it is setting out to accomplish actually is. Because if you stop and think about it, what is it that you really want most in life? What is it that at the core of your being you most deeply desire? The Bible would say that actually it's for God to come and to save us. To save us from all that's wrong with us within and from all that's wrong in the world. And you know, deep down, that's what every other person actually desires too. It may be clouded by self-deception. It may be obscured by latching on to the latest cause, or it's just part of making these, these things right. I want suffering to end. I want my life to go better. I want good health But all of being right in the world and in our existence is bound up in what the Bible calls salvation. You know, sometimes we might feel ashamed because the gospel doesn't immediately fix life's problems, does it? It doesn't make heaven on earth right now. And people will point that out, don't they? See, why trust in this if your life is just as miserable or it's more miserable than my life? But Paul calls us to step back and to see what the gospel is really for. It may not be an immediate fix, but it's far bigger and grander than all of the fixes that we're looking for. It is the reality that all of the gifts and glimpses and longings of our heart are really just a taste of. And so we need to have in our minds how big God's work in the gospel really is. One theologian summarizes it as this. The gospel reveals God's death-defeating, curse-reversing, evil-vanquishing, devil-crushing, sin-cleansing, life-giving, love-forming, 
people uniting power to salvation. When we hear the gospel, what is it about? It's about all of those things by God's saving power. And you know, as soon as we hear something like that, something that amazing, what happens in my heart is doubts start to creep in. Am I being sold a bill of false goods? Nothing that amazing could really happen, could it? Because as soon as we open our hearts up to something so wonderful, we realize how deep the problems really run, don't they? What could really bring about that kind of change? What could really bring about something as deep as salvation? And we know that it's, there's no policy that could do it. There's no self-reform that could do it. There's no social movement that we could organize of all getting on the same page to bring this about. But you know what Paul says? Thankfully, it doesn't depend on those things because the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And that tells us a few things, doesn't it? One, it tells us of the power that lies behind what is going to bring this about. It is God's power. And God is all-powerful that anything he desires, he can bring about. We say that God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And so there's nothing that's going to stand in the way of God bringing about this salvation. But you know what's also amazing about that statement? That the gospel is the power of God for salvation? is that God has chosen to take his limitless power and for this salvation that will make all things right. And he has chosen to manifest it, to bind it with the gospel. This message, this word of the cross that Paul says to those who are perishing is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, that word of, cross, of the cross is what? It is the power of God unleashed in this world that will not stop until it brings about the fullness of the salvation that it promises. And so what does this mean? It means that if we are trusting in the gospel for God's saving work, we will not be ashamed because God's power will bring the fulfillment of every promise of salvation through the gospel. And we know that all of God's promises find their yes and their amen in the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he has done on our behalf. And so Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because he knows what it's for. He knows what it's working toward. But then our third point is Paul is not ashamed of the gospel also because of how the gospel works how the gospel works. That all can sound well and good, right? And I'm particularly comforted when I hear it's the power of God. (laughs) And we keep it focused on him and his agency and getting us all to where we need to be. But part of what's wild about the gospel is that it involves people. Kind of wonder if God thought of that when he uh, came up with it. No, of course he did. But since it involves people, that can get a little dicey, doesn't it? 
that can be an opportunity for shame or embarrassment. Why? Because people are complicated and our lives are messy and we can say, how in the world in the midst of all of our messiness is somehow God going to work out this accomplishing of salvation? But Paul knows how the gospel works. And first of all, what we see is that the gospel is, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Part of what Paul is saying here is there is a universality and inclusion to the gospel. Salvation for everyone. And this is a radical message. It was a radical message in Paul's day. It's a radical message in ours. That salvation is not just for a few. Salvation is not just for Roman citizens. Salvation is not just for pious Jews. It's not just for the wealthy. It's not just for the wise. It is for everyone. And there's a historical progression to it. It's rooted in history and God's plan. He says it's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And even in that, which we'll unpack more as we come to chapters 9 through 11, But we see God choosing this unlikely pagan named Abraham and promising that through his offspring, the nations, the Greeks, would receive the blessings of that very same salvation. And so this universality of the gospel, the fact that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone, means this. There is no one person that we can look at and say that because of this, the gospel does not apply to you. There is no one person that we can encounter and say, because of this, because of your ethnic background, because of your status, because of what you have done, or because of what you have not done, the gospel is not for you. The gospel is not relevant to you. God has chosen to work in such a way that the gospel is for everyone. But it also says that it's God's salvation for everyone who believes. And there's a particularity to it. It's only for those who believe. Who believe in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul has mentioned already in the introduction, and as he's going to talk about much more. And he really summarizes this and how this works in the most amazing way, in verse 17. And it can be easy to miss it because he's using so few words. But he says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And the way that it's revealed is from faith for faith. Or another way that can be translated is from faith to faith. It's a way of saying that it's all of faith. It's all of belief. It's all of trust from beginning to end. What he's saying is that the righteousness of God is revealed wherever faith in the gospel is found. And then he cites Habakkuk 2.4 to show that this is how it has always been. He says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now Paul, in using this quotation, he changes a few of the words from how it was initially written. And he does that to emphasize this connection. And it's an important connection for us to see. 
It's a connection between the gospel and righteousness and life. And what's interesting about it is we have moved from the righteousness of God, God's saving action, to now those who are righteous, to righteous people. The righteous one, the righteous person shall live by faith. And what Paul is going to show as he goes on is that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this righteous God gives righteousness to those who are unrighteous. That's a pretty amazing thing. He gives righteousness to those who were unrighteous so that by faith in the finished work of Christ, rather than perishing under God's wrath, they can live. Not because of their works, but because it's all from start to finish by faith. The righteous one by his faith shall live. The righteous one shall live eternally by faith. And faith itself is not even a work. It is the instrument by which we lay hold of the blessings of of this salvation. Calvin says it's like a vessel. Faith is like our open-handed reaching out to put our trust in God and in his saving work through Christ. And so I know that's a lot of kind of technical things. But in it, we can come to understand this. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because of how the gospel works. The gospel is received by faith. And you know what that means? It means it's not about his performance. It's not about his track record. It's not about how well he did that week. The gospel will not fail Paul. It won't embarrass him because ultimately it doesn't depend upon him. The gospel is for everyone because it's not based on us or anything that we do or anything about our background or our story. The gospel is received by open-handed faith and trust in what God has done in Christ. When we look to ourselves, when we stop and we look inside, it's pretty easy to feel ashamed. (laughs) If us somehow attaining to all things being made right depended on what's going on in here or what's happened this morning, we could throw in yesterday. For those who are really spiritual, we'll make it a week. I'm pretty sure this morning would probably cover us all, though. Um, We'll talk more about depravity as we go. But if it were about us and our performance in any way, we'd, we'd have reason to be ashamed and embarrassed. But the gospel is designed by the wisdom of God to do what? To take our eyes off of ourselves and to look not in pride or despair at our own performance, our own works, our own wisdom, our own strength, but instead to look in faith to Christ and his work for us and to be proud of, to boast in the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing about ourselves. And that's good news. It's good news that keeps us from being ashamed. 
It's news that keeps us from being embarrassed that somehow salvation will not happen to us or for us because of something about us. And I think we need reminded of this regularly, don't we? Part of the beauty of that is the book of Romans reminds us. But another part of the beauty of that is the Lord's Supper reminds us of that every week. Calvin said this so beautifully, that faith is coming with the mouths of our souls open to seek God's grace. With the mouths of our souls open to seek God's grace. Have you thought about what your role in the Lord's Supper is? What happens in the Lord's Supper as we partake of it? In it, the signs of the finished work of Christ are presented before us, his body and his blood given for us. But what do we do? Take, give thanks, eat, receive, trust Christ in his saving work. Trust that we are people who have been made righteous by the saving action of God and we have received that by faith. By receiving. And just as surely as we eat and take this in, so also it reminds us that as we receive and take in and trust the work of Christ, we too will be saved and will never be ashamed because salvation is truly ours because of what God has done. So when Paul talks about how the gospel works, it is received by faith. But as we close, I just want to talk about one more way the gospel works um, that's related to this context of Habakkuk 2.4. The gospel is received by faith. It results in living. It results in eternal life. But the gospel also leads to living by faith. Living by faith. And I think this is one of the reasons we sometimes may feel ashamed of the gospel. If we think back to the context of Habakkuk 2, do you remember the book of Habakkuk? It's such a beautiful, comforting book. And it begins with Habakkuk's complaint, which good and right spiritual people do. They bring complaints before God. But what is Habakkuk's complaint? Things are not going well. Things within the nation are horrible. The people are mired in sin. And you know what's happening judgment is going to come upon them. The Chaldeans are coming, and it's going to be bad. And what is the crux of Habakkuk's complaint? It's God, where are you? You've made these promises of salvation, but I don't see them. God, what are you doing? Because when I look at what the world is saying that you're doing, it looks unjust to me. And so I'm going to climb my watchtower and I am going to wait for your response, is what Habakkuk says. And it's within that context, that context of looking out in the world and seeing this disparity between the salvation that God has promised and the seeming inconsistency with how messed up life really is, that Habakkuk 2.4 comes to the prophet and says, the righteous will live by faith. And part of what that's doing is foreshadowing what we just talked about, that God will give his gift of righteousness, we will receive it by faith, and we will live eternally. But part of what that verse is also doing is saying that those who are saved by faith in the work of Christ also are now called to live lives of faith, 
of trusting in the promises of God, continuing to walk in the trust of those things while everything around us may seem to be inconsistent with all that he said he will do. The righteous will live by faith. Just as we look in faith and lay hold of and trust God's saving work to deal with our sin and make us whole in Christ, so also until Christ returns, we every day are reaching out in faith to lay hold of the promises of God, trusting that all he has said that will come to pass one day will be true, even though it doesn't look like it right now. And that's part of why Paul, even though he goes through much suffering and persecution, even though everything about the church and about his life looks weak, he's not ashamed of it because he knows this is how cross-oriented living looks, this side of glory, but it in no way makes the promises of God less true. We walk by faith now. One day it will be by sight of all that God has promised for us. And that's why Paul says later in chapter 9 and again in chapter 10 that all who believe in Christ, they will never be put to shame because through Christ it will all come to pass. And so may the Lord help us not to be ashamed of this gospel as we cling to it each day, trusting in the promises of God, but fixing our eyes on what has happened in the cross and what will happen when our Lord Jesus returns, knowing that we will not be ashamed because of all that God has done for us in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we have just spent a few moments pondering the wonder of your plan to bring salvation. And when we stop and consider it, it is amazing that you loved us enough to make all things right. We pray that you will give us the faith until we see the fullness of that day to trust in Christ and all that he has done to save us from our sin, to make us new, to destroy death, to reverse the curse, to liberate creation from its bondage to decay, to restore our relationship with God and and one day to bring us into perfect fellowship with you forever. We thank you that one day we will feast in the house of Zion after all these sorrows and troubles are behind us. And as we do so, we will say you have done great things. And so we pray that you will help us to trust in the great things that you have done and are doing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.